Hey there, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. Do you think maybe one of these days we should just take a recording of us saying that and then paste it into every episode rather than saying it every time we record? Or if we do it live every time, then they know we're thinking about it. Am I an expert yet? No. That's true. It is a dynamic (laughs) process. We do have to do this expertise check-in every week. I'm not taking any steps to change that personally, but (laughs) who knows? (laughs) Last time you and I did an episode together, you went first. Mm-hmm. So this week it's my turn to go first. And I'm really excited for this one. Because this is an animal that I've really wanted to talk about. And somebody finally requested it. So I had an excuse to talk about it. What is it? This is the Saiga. Oh. Do you know what a Saiga is? I do, yes. Okay, very good. All right. I'm, I'm going to call it the shotgun deer. Oh, because of the barrels. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, a little bit. The scientific name is Saiga tatarica. They are the only member of the Saiga genus. So just the one species. Pretty unique. This species was submitted by Dustin Steichman. And Dustin is from the Sandman Stories Presents podcast, which is a podcast featuring folk stories from around the world. Okay. It's very charming. And Dustin is also super nice. Uh, We really like Dustin. So go check out Sandman Stories Presents if that sounds like the sort of thing you'd enjoy listening to. And Dustin wanted us to talk about the Saiga. And I wholeheartedly agree because this is an animal that's been kind of like in my peripheral Mm -hmm. for a while. And I really just wanted an excuse to sink my teeth in yeah i was very excited for this one i'm getting my information from the saiga conservation alliance the wildlife conservation society of mongolia national geographic the san diego zoo and um some articles that i will cite later as they come up cool if you're not familiar with a saiga they are like christian said they look like a deer mm-hmm. you know they have long sticky sticky is not the right word twiggy is a better word Might also be sticky i don't, I know. don't think they are <laughs> they're mammals so they're covered in fur and i would imagine they're probably not sticky not a natural state no for something covered in fur i don't think but they do kind of look like a little bit of a deer because they've got those long skinny legs and they do have hoofs mm-hmm. big diversion from the deer image when you get to their face basically their face looks a little bit like a tapirs almost Mm. it has a big bulbous balloon nose but then this long droopy snout that sort of sticks out and like hangs down over the front of their face um very identifiable feature of the saiga And then males have these big long horns on the top. Females don't, but you know what it is when you look at it. Um, This actually surprised me because (laughs) I had never seen imagery of them like next to a human or next to anything that gave me a sense of scale for how big they are. So I guess I always assumed they were maybe the size of like the deer, like white-tailed deer maybe that we would see here. They are only about two feet tall at the shoulder. Oh, no. Which is 70 centimeters. It's little. It's little. They are about the size of a goat. So they're sort of actually more analogous to goats than they are to deer. 
Really? They're actually more closely related to goats than they are to deer. Like I said, it's difficult to get a sense of scale for them because mm. they are found in a part of the world called the Eurasian Steppe. Mm. That's Steppe, S-T-E-P-P-E. I always wondered how that was pronounced. I th- Yeah, it's just Steppe. I don't okay. think there's anything unusual about it. Hope not. I'm going to be saying it like Steppe this whole time. <laughs> I was guessing steep for the longest time. Yeah, Steppy. <laughs> Steppe. No, I'm going to be saying step this whole time. I hope I'm right. A step, by the way, if you're not familiar with this word, because I've like seen this word so many times, I never bothered to like find out what it meant. Uh-huh. So a step is a dry, flat grassland. It's basically a more temperate version of a savanna. Okay. So it's like if you took a savanna and you just like pushed it up north a little ways, so it's not like as hot and tropical as a savanna is. The Eurasian step specifically stretches from Eastern Europe all the way across Asia, Hmm. all the way like just shy of the Pacific coast. But this is the largest by far, like continuous like steppe ecosystem in the world. Hmm. A more familiar example of a steppe to American listeners would be the short grass prairies of the North American Great Plains. Hmm. Yeah. So like that sort of image that comes in your head of like these wide flat lands with nothing but endless short grass on the ground some mountains in the distance um usually they're like surrounded by mountains and the mountains are kind of what keeps this area so arid right because like storms or like breezes from the ocean or something don't make it over those mountains yeah yeah. so in these like flatlands in between are just big flat dry zones basically Most saigas are found in Kazakhstan with populations that are also in Mongolia, Russia, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, but mostly in Kazakhstan. They have like a subspecies in Mongolia, Hmm. um, but most of them are kind of all in this one big area smack dab in the middle of Kazakhstan. Back in the Ice Age, saigas used to be found across wider ranges that even got into the Americas. Really? Yeah. So there are saiga fossils in like Alaska where they were like roaming alongside woolly mammoths and stuff like that. Yeah. So saigas have been kicking it for a long time. Uh, They've been around for a hot minute. I bet moose kicked them out of the Americas. They're like, this uh, continent ain't big enough for the two of us. Right. I mean, it would be. Like, moose are pretty big, but saigas aren't very big. So Apparently, tiny. they used to be bigger, but they're smaller now than they used to be. Oh, yeah. Pocket size. So, they belong to the taxonomic family Bovidae. So, like other types of antelopes, they are relatives of cows, bison, and buffalo. Not deer. That's unexpected. Yeah, there is like this group called the true antelope, and they're not in it. But you know how I feel about these like true whatever groups, you know, like true bugs. like <laughs> The real antelope. Yeah, I do not care. <laughs> I really don't. Call it an antelope. See if I care. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> A key distinction between antelopes and deer, which do look very similar, mm-hmm. is that antelopes have horns that grow perpetually oh okay whereas deer have antlers and antlers yeah. fall off seasonally we've talked about this before with, like, with moose right like you talked about uh-huh. how, like once a year the antlers get fuzzy and fall off that doesn't happen with antelopes their horns are there to stay mm, okay they're also kind of like bulkier right so like horns don't typically have those like crazy branching sort of structures you see on moose on like deer antlers mm. so that's kind of one way you can tell if you're dealing with a deer or 
an antelope. So all of these are cloven hoofed ungulates. So they have hooves, which are split between their two sort of main toes. So if you look at their hoof, the bottom of it will be kind of split right down the middle. You see this in like cows. You see this in pigs, right? The one you don't see it in is horses. Right. Horses are a totally different thing. But you do see it in deer. Yes. So they are also these, you know, cloven hoofed ungulates. Okay. That being said, saigas do have those little cloven hoofs, which mm-hmm. are they're quite petite and very cute, I think. <laughs> I imagine. I, I think they're adorable. Just tiny little little toothpick feet. They're just so cute. <laughs> Can't stand it. So that's kind of your intro to what a saiga is. Uh, to get into my ratings for this animal, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, we rate our animals out of 10 on categories, starting with effectiveness, which is physical adaptation. So things built into the animal's body to let it succeed let it excel let it perform like Mm -hmm. let it do the things that it's trying to do eat not be eaten stuff like that i'm giving for effectiveness i'm giving the saiga an eight out of ten just right off the bat i know you want to talk about the nose like what's going on why is it like that there has to be a reason it would not get that absurd uh, if some selective pressure had not been applied it's so goofy looking so the nasal cavity and the nostrils are just drastically enlarged uh really does look like someone like blew into their nose and it just like inflated them like a little balloon the nose serves multiple functions okay so first of all think about the step it's this big dry land it gets a very wide range of temperatures it gets really really warm in the summer it gets really really cold in the winter so the nose serves them really well in both climates so first of all in the summer it gets really dusty Mm. like you know everything just dries up and there's just a lot of sand and dust being kicked up into the air the nose on the inside is lined with all of these like little cavities and tunnels almost and stuff like that so it's it's full of surface area basically Mm -hmm. with lots of hair and also lots of mucus so that's really helpful for filtering the dust out of the air that they breathe. So all of that dust gets like caught up before it makes it to their lungs and helps them breathe clean air. Basically like a booger defense system. <laughs> Tactical boogers. <laughs> So it helps them there. And Mm. then when it gets cold in the winter, because it does get really cold in the winter, that like cavernous inside of their nose with all of that like surface area, it warms the air up before it gets inside of their body, which keeps them from losing heat. It helps them maintain their like internal warmth by not bringing cold air into their body. Like a little boiler room that they've got in their nose. Does this functionality seem similar to, like, the camel, perhaps? I would think so. I think for the camel, a lot of that stuff is done at the edge of the nostril. Okay. Like, right at the beginning. But for the saiga, it goes, like, inside of their nose. is all these, like, cavernous, like, passageways and stuff. It also, this is just an added bonus of the nose. I don't think this is necessarily something that helps them, but I do like it. It is that the nose gives them a very distinct vocalization. Mm. You could probably guess about what the sound (laughs) sounds like that they make because some other animals with noses like this sound like it, but I will drop a sound clip in here. But to me, it sounds like a sheep bleeding into a trombone. (laughs) All right. Mm-hmm. 
like, <laughs> Wait, that sounded like Waluigi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you just play some light jazz? <laughs> it's really goofy. I don't think that helps. I mean, they do like communicate vocally to each other, which so like that's nice yeah. that they can do that. It's just I love it. It's amazing <laughs> for me. Another way that they're really well physically adapted to their environment is their fur. Their fur actually changes drastically throughout the year. So in the winter when it's cold and snowy, their fur is like long and silky and fluffy and it's actually like pale white. Okay. And then in the summer when it gets hot, they shed their fur like a lot of animals with big fluffy coats do. They shed their long fluffy fur and they leave this short, more like tan, beige-ish color underneath. Mm-hmm. But they look like a completely different animal, basically, because you can see so much more of their like form of their body and you can really see how skinny their little oh. legs are. Um, so they go from being like a fluffy, poofy little sheep to being like, I don't know, maybe like a... A small deer, like a dictic is what they look like. Okay. So it's a pretty impressive change. Other thing that they have is that, like I mentioned, the males have horns. These are pointy, like ridged horns, and they get really, really long. Like oh. they can get quite impressive. If you've ever played the game Breath of the Wild, I think that their horns look a lot like the moblin horns. You know, like the big goblin dudes? Yeah. They have this one long ridged horn that's like kind of curvy that grows out of their forehead. Sure. That's kind of what the Saiga's horn looks like. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this is primarily used for fighting each other. So it's not a lot of good against predators. It's mostly, you know, toxic masculinity. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that is not really what they use to evade predators. The best tool in their kit is their speed. Makes These sense. are really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can get. You seem so like blase about that. You like com- are completely unimpressed I'm just already. Like, what else is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> Acoustic attack, go! <laughs> oh, like they do a sound blast out of their nose. <laughs> well, that didn't work. <laughs> no. Uh, they can run up to fifty miles per hour, which is eighty kilometers per hour. That's impressive. It is way faster than anything else that lives there. Kind of like our pronghorns that we have here in right. North America. They're just way faster than anything else that lives is, here. Is there a similar story there? I would imagine there would be. Um, the story behind the pronghorn is that they evolved to outrun a species of cheetah that used to live in North America. And then the cheetah went extinct, leaving only the pronghorn as like way faster than anything else. There's no better outrunning than that. <laughs> they won they won the evolutionary arms race we we did an episode on pronghorns with spectacular comedian vinnie thomas so go back and listen to that if you want to know more about pronghorns so i would imagine probably a similar situation here okay. they're very fast um and they don't have like a ton of predators in this area it's mostly like wolves will sometimes hunt them like foxes big birds of prey like eagles and stuff oh that's right because they're little they're very little <laughs> uh, really the newborns are yeah. the most vulnerable and then once they reach adulthood they're probably fine once okay. they reach adulthood um, because they don't have you know that only <laughs> tool in their belt which is speed right so if you can't get up and bolt then oh, well you're kind of a sitting duck at that point it's kind of the biggest factor for me for their 
effectiveness is just their resilience. And I mean that at the individual and at the species level. Okay. So at the individual level, saigas are tough. They can handle a lot. Their habitat experiences drought, intense heat, and intense cold, like all throughout the year. So they can really take a lot of environmental extremes. Uh, Saigas are also able to eat some plants which are highly toxic to anything else. So they've got a good, you know, poison immunity. It's sounding more and more like a goat. It is very (laughs) goat-like, yeah. Definitely more similar to a goat than a deer. It's like halfway between goat and camel. Yeah, it is like a camel goat. So at the individual level, they have this really formidable constitution. But when you zoom out, they also are an incredibly resilient species in general for one important reason, and that is their very rapid turnaround time. Oh, okay. Like the period of time between generations is just like, they're like on a conveyor belt, basically. Uh They have like an assembly line of saigas. So female saigas can produce their first calf at as young as eight months old. Wow. Yeah. So by then they've already had a baby. And then after that, they will have another calf each year. And every year, the likelihood of having more calves at a time increases. Mm. So their first calf, they'll probably just have the one, but then each calf after that is more likely to be twins or triplets. Like as they get older, they're more likely to have more calves. Yeah, so within a period of just a couple of years, they can produce a lot of calves, which is really helpful if you're experiencing mass die-offs. Yeah. That has been a thing that has happened many times for saigas. Saigas have been in <laughs> dire straits on the regular. Like these poor things cannot catch a break. So in the 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, saigas in this whole area were just a really important source of both food and income for people that lived in these rural areas of what had previously been the Soviet Union. People got to eat. You know, like, people got to survive. So the saigas were just heavily, heavily hunted. It was for meat, but it was also for their horns, Mm. um, which are a traditional medicine ingredient, which that's where the income comes in, right? You can go hunt the saiga, get the horn, sell it for money. Their populations declined very sharply. In 1993, the population was estimated at over a million. But then just six years later, in 1999, the number had fallen by over half to just a little over 400,000. The low point for them was in 2004, where they reached 48,000. Wow. So that is a decrease of over 95% of their population in just a little over 10 years. Yeah. So that's like one of the sharpest declines of any mammal species ever recorded. Like, Uh they vanished, basically. So... There were a lot of conservation efforts and legal protections that were put in place because they addressed it. They were like, oh, no, these saigas are in crisis. We love our saigas. And the conservation efforts worked. They were able to recover surprisingly quickly. Like, That's good. Like I mentioned how they're, they're able to crank out babies very fast. So luckily that makes their numbers really bouncy. At the beginning of 2015, there were estimated to be about 250,000 saigas, which is a really quick turnaround from just 48,000 in 2004. But then 2015 happened. So 2015 was a really bad year for saigas. What happened was in May, saigas in that biggest range of theirs in the middle of Kazakhstan started just dying. Like oh. they were just dropping like flies. Okay. Have you heard of this? I think so, yeah. It was bizarre. They just all died. Uh-huh. 
about 200,000 saigas had contracted a respiratory disease that was caused by the bacteria Pasteurella. Mm. Now, Pasteurella, this was really, really weird because that is a super common bacteria and it is commonly found in their respiratory system already. It's just not that big a deal. Like it doesn't bother them. They don't get a disease from it very often, but out of nowhere, they got the disease and died. So, you know, researchers did huge studies where they tried to figure out what were the factors going on, what happened, why did they all suddenly get this disease? The culprit that they were able to narrow it down to was climate change. Oh. So that spring, the spring of 2015, was the hottest and the most humid spring ever recorded in this region. Mm -hmm. So something about the heat and the humidity let the bacteria make the jump from their respiratory system to their bloodstream. Like, you know how bacteria can just thrive in like especially humid environments and then when you add the heat onto it, you know, the climate can really affect the way that your body is operating. I don't think they were able to like point to a specific like this was the cause that the heat and the humidity had, but that was why the bacteria was able to suddenly affect all of these saigas and all of them died. The article that I got that information from was really, really in-depth and great. It was called, Why Did Two-Thirds of These Weird Antelopes Suddenly Drop Dead? And that was by Ed Yong in The Atlantic in January of 2018. Rude, by the way. Weird (laughs) antelope? There's so much more than that. Come on now. But even after that, like I said, that was like, 200,000 of the 250,000 that there were. So that was a huge die off. They lost most of their population like all over again. Uh. Like after having to rebuild from a huge drop off, they had to rebuild and then it just got wiped clean and they had to start all over again. Hmm. But they've bounced back again from that. That's good. Yeah. So they're just a very tough, very resilient little critter and I respect them immensely for that. Yeah. I kind of half expected one of the culprits to be a genetic bottleneck of some sort. Yes. Oh, my gosh, it was. So when you get that genetic bottlenecking, the problem with that is that the population isn't able to reproduce immunity. Genetic bottlenecking probably made them predisposed to all being wiped out by this virus at the same time. Whereas if they had had a more stable genetic pool, they probably could have survived that a lot better. Yeah. So, yeah, that was like a factor into how many of them died. Once the disease infected a saiga, it was a 100% death rate. Mm. Like, none of them survived the infection. Oh, okay. So, they probably could have if they had had some sort of natural, like, immunity built up. So, the ones that survived weren't because they dealt with it better. They just weren't exposed to it. Right. They just weren't there. They were in a different okay. region. So it's yeah. still a danger then for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's a bi- that was a big concern when they were trying to repopulate the area. Like they were thinking about like bringing Saiga back in, and they were like, "What if they come back and then the whole thing happens all over again?" Right. Yeah. Like that was that's like a legitimate concern. It's like you know, like what is going to stop this from happening again? Right. Huge ecological disaster that happened to the Saiga, and I cannot believe that they have been able to recover from it. Mm-hmm. So good, good on them next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity. These are behavioral adaptations, things the animal is doing to thrive where they live. I'm going to give the Saiga a 7 out of 10. They do have some interesting like behavioral tools, I suppose. One of them is that they find strength in numbers. 
Uh. So saigas do live in herds, usually consisting of one male in his harem of females, which can be around 30 to 50. But then during their mating season in the spring, they all come together in masses to form these herds of just like thousands and thousands of them as far as the eye can see. Can you imagine what that sounds like? (laughs) You could probably hear that from like a country away. Right. <laughs> probably keeps people up at night. I bet it sounds nice though. It's probably beautiful. Maybe it's an acquired taste. <laughs> and then the females form these large aggregates where like the females will all split off into this big herd and they do something really funny with it. it's called synchronous birth where all of the females give birth at the same time. Okay. Not like the same time time, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like over the course of about a week all of the taigas in this region will be born boom, 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 all one after another. Mm. It's a numbers game, right? Like, yeah, yeah. if an eagle's going to come pick up a saiga calf, you want to improve the chances that it's not going to be yours, basically. So everybody uh, give birth together. And a finite number of predators can only eat so many in a given time period. Right, you're like overloading them. Like you're yeah. like saturating the market basically with, <laughs> with newborn calves. <laughs> and they do like to some extent, they, they do like protect their newborns too. So like, you know, when you've got a big crowd of adults there, you know, someone's there to watch the kids. And then once the calves are born, Saiga moms hide them in the grass. This is much like our deer do with their fawns. You know, yeah. how, like if you've ever seen a little baby deer fawn that's been left behind by their mom, their mom will go out to like eat and forage and stuff like that and then come back for the baby because she's left the baby somewhere safe. So the, the Saiga will do the same thing. Uh, the calves lie perfectly still with their head pressed down against the ground. Oh. It is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life because they curl up with their little feet tucked up under them and then they like stretch their head out and lay down so they can get as flat as they can. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. It tugs the heartstrings. It is so cute. <laughs> but there, it's also very effective. Like it's hard to see them because like, yeah. they, they lay under the grass. So you really, and they blend in. So yeah, it's an effective strategy. I think the last kind of thing that they do that I think counts for their ingenuity is that they stay moving. They rotate throughout their range seasonally to follow food sources. Like the winters in the steppe can be really harsh. So during the winter, they may need to move to a new place to find vegetation that's blooming there. And then they'll have to come back in the summer. So they they stay on the move. They stay migratory. I think it's a good idea. You know, never let them know your next move. The final category we rate animals on is aesthetics. I'm giving the Saiga a nine out of 10. Okay. Um, I think this is an acquired taste. It certainly has been for me. I first learned this animal existed maybe like a few years ago, maybe mm-hmm. like two or three years ago. And at first, I will admit, I wasn't on board. It's very different. It's very different. And I was a little taken aback. Yeah. It was a little too different for me. I don't think my mind was open to it at the time. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I did. I followed on Twitter. I followed the Saiga Conservation Alliance. And they are always posting camera trap photos and footage where they set up camera traps, you know, out in the step. So the Saigas are just wandering around the way they normally do. They're not like being spooked off by humans or something. And these are the cutest pictures I've ever seen in my life (laughs) because they're like, the Saigas are just out living their best lives and sometimes you get a picture where one is like looking inquisitively at the camera and it's got its head tilted in just the right way and then i feel like that's when you get to appreciate that they really have these enormous beautiful round eyes Mm -hmm. 
It's so cute. They're <laughs> so cute, especially in the winter. They're way cuter in the winter when they're nice and fluffy. Oh. Um, it's just the cutest. And I will say baby Saya calves look like sweet little baby lambs. Ooh. They really do. They have those like lanky, knobby looking legs. Yeah. Also, their nose is like wrinkly when they're a baby. <laughs> it's like they haven't grown into their nose oh. yet. Like the nose is like a few sizes too big Poor and they thing. have to grow into it. It's so cute. <laughs> baby psychic calves are, I think, the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. So okay, absolutely adorable. If you recently watched the Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney Plus, there is some Saiga representation. Not really, but <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi does have an EOP. Yeah. Is that how they say it? Yep. In the fandom? Yep. Christian's our Star Wars fandom liaison. <laughs> Check. He's my Star Wars ambassador. Uh, for this, I am an expert. This is say. the thing you are an expert in. <laughs> the EOP is a camel-like creature native to Tatooine. Uh, you can see them in, I think, the Star Wars prequels. Yep. Uh, episode one. Yeah. So um, one of uh, farts. Like through which end? That's butt. Oh, okay. The fart. I, I thought maybe it, it's fart butt. I thought maybe it made like a <laughs> sort of sound like out its nose or something. It's a seed with Jar Jar Binks. Mm, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. That tracks. So yeah, the EOP looks a lot like a Saiga, except they're more camel-like in size and application because they do like use the EOPs for like transportation yes. and stuff. So that part is more camel-like, but in the face, that's all Saiga, baby, right there. <laughs> so if you like the EOPs, check out Saigas and vice versa. Um, to wrap things up for the Saiga, their conservation status is still critically endangered. So hunting is still a huge factor even today, as is habitat fragmentation by highway and railway construction, and also the development of oil and gas exploration and extraction projects. Mm. So all that stuff can definitely pose a huge threat to any ecosystem that it is being done in. Um, but for animals like this that need wide home ranges, and also like I mentioned, they're migratory, right? They need these wide ranges that they can travel from place to place throughout the year. So they need year round uninterrupted access to many different areas in their region right. so if there's you know a giant railroad cutting that in half that is too dangerous for them to cross then you're going to run into this problem of them not having access to food during the right season and then if they don't have access to that food during the season that they need it then you know they could starve and die so all of those are threats to the saiga the saiga conservation alliance is a network of professionals that are working on projects to help conserve the saiga in the steppe ecosystem they have some really interesting projects uh, one of them is helping local people set up sustainable businesses that can help decrease their reliance on the saiga for survival so helping people get set up with their own non-saiga related businesses one i saw on their website was like helping women set up embroidery businesses oh. yeah so basically giving people an opportunity to make more money so that they don't need to necessarily go out and hunt saiga to live another one of their projects was setting up protected areas for safe saiga habitat so they had one called resurrection island oh which i thought was really cool another one that i thought was really sweet was an annual saiga day festival 
that celebrates the birth of the Saiga calves in the spring. How nice. It is really sweet. I loved I, I looked at some pictures on the internet. It was really, really cute. So you can support the conservation efforts by they let you symbolically adopt a Saiga. I will provide links to their website and stuff in the episode description. So if you feel so moved by the plight of this goofy little camel goat, click on through. Check them out. At least follow them on Twitter. The pictures are so good. I promise. The pictures are amazing. Do you get to name your symbolically adopted saga? In your heart. I want it on paper, though. I mean, I would imagine it's probably about as valid as a star name registry, right? Like, But I'm not going to name a star Squidward. <laughs> you could (laughs) wouldn't be as funny though (laughs) squidward were you sitting on that this whole time for all of five seconds maybe (laughs) (laughs) that's rude i bet they probably have like a list of names that you're not allowed to name your saiga and squidward's probably on it (laughs) or what if it's like a username system where like each one has to be unique so if someone's already named one squidward you can't i don't think they do let you name them you could just What's name the it point? to yourself. This is Christian the Saiga. Yeah, I'll name one after you. <laughs> Would that that's a compliment though, right? To name a Saiga that's after somebody. How, that's how I'm interpreting it. Yeah. For the health of our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Saiga. Thanks, honey. It's a delightful creature. I didn't even know all that stuff about their like the die off and yeah. their population, you know numbers and stuff i did not know that stuff literally all i knew going in is that it's a little guy that has a weird nose that was the extent of my information yeah and now i know all this stuff and so do you now this is your problem thank you i've burdened you with knowledge <laughs> let's take a quick break to hear promos from our friends on max fun and then we'll get to your animal Hal Loveland here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment professional wrestling for more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Hello, I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And we host Still Buffering, a cross-generational guide to the culture that made us. Every week, we share media that made us who we are. Things like Archie Comics, Sailor Moon, and lots of Taylor Swift. And now that Riley's an adult, it comes with 100% more butts. And now I am totally comfortable with it. So check out new episodes of Still Buffering every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Butts, butts, butts. Join in, Riley. Butts, 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 butts. So, Christian, what is your animal this week? So, the animal I'm bringing this week is the alligator gar. Finally. Yes. Scientific name, Attractosteus spatula. Immediately, no. What? Spatula? Yep, spatula. You're kidding. Nope. (laughs) Probably the only time there's a species name that is like a common word. 
Uh, like you knew how to pronounce that immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, I've seen this word. Yeah, the you gene think it's spatula. No, I don't. <laughs> because attractosteus comes from the Greek words for spindle and bony. Okay, and spatula comes from the Greek word spathe, meaning any tool with a broad, flat blade. Such as, for example, spatula. What we, what we, I assume, in English-speaking countries, not just America, refers to as a spatula for baking. Made famous by SpongeBob yeah. SquarePants. This species was submitted by Zan via email. Thank you, Zan. I'll be getting my information from the Florida Museum. Found that FloridaMuseum.ufl.edu, Animal Diversity Web at AnimalDiversity.org, National Geographic, and the Ologies podcast, specifically their episode titled Garology with Solomon David. Love you, Dr. Solomon David. Yes. You're an icon. So talking about what an alligator gar looks like. So you might have heard the word gar before that uh, describes a couple different fish. Um, but this one is specifically the alligator gar, specific species. It is the largest of the gar. And Big guy. One of the largest freshwater fish in North America. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. We got some big fish out here. We do. This is a proper uh, river monster. <laughs> Their body is torpedo shaped. I like when fish are described that way. They're round. <laughs> long and cylindrical. It's a tube. Yeah. They have a head that is long, it has a long and broad snout with lots of pointy teeth, which gives them their nickname alligator gar. Or not nickname, but common name alligator gar because right. they resemble an alligator. Their head does, at least. If you're not very familiar with gar and what they look like, they do mm. have a truly a proper snout. Yes. Like, this is not a, a thing you see in fish very often, but it is a legit, like... Yep. In other gar species, that snout is very thin and long, but this one's very broad. Uh, in terms of coloration, they're a kind of grayish color, sometimes brown... Um, it's that classic, you know, lighter coloring on the bottom, darker up top for yeah. camouflage reasons. A common color scheme that you see for freshwater fish being yeah. this like muddy green like yeah. color. A lot of people don't like that about freshwater fish. Like they don't like that they have these kind of like drab, sad beige colors. Yeah, they're not colorful reef fish, that's for sure. Yeah, but it works. Yeah. So I mentioned these are very large fish. So they commonly grow to six and a half feet or two <sighs> meters. And over 100 pounds, or 45 kilograms, but they're reported to grow over 350 pounds, or 160 kilograms, and 10 feet long, or 3 meters long. How is that reported? <laughs> old pictures, basically. Pictures? There's there's a famous p old picture from, I think, the 1910s. Mm, okay. Uh, but, you know. Because <laughs> I ran into this problem with the blue marlin, where I was trying to get a proper size range. Mm -hmm. And, of course, all over the place, I kept running into, well, this person reports that they caught a 20-foot-long one. Sure. Right? You know, like, you yeah, run into yeah. that situation where it's like, Oh, some fisher somewhere said they saw one that was a billion miles long. Sure. But that's reportedly how big they can get. I believe it. Where they're found. So in Florida, it's only in the panhandle. So it's not in our neck of the woods in Florida. No. But, you know, going kind of west of there, they're also in the Gulf Coastal Plain and Mississippi River Basin. Mm. So the low portion of the Ohio and Missouri River. And it goes southwest through Texas down into Mexico. That whole range. I feel like I associate them with Louisiana. Mm -hmm. That's where that's one place where you can find them. Yeah. So the taxonomies are pretty interesting. They belong to the family Lepisostidae, 
I put notes how to pronounce it, and I'm second guessing how I how to pronounce. No, you those. nailed it. You nailed it. Stuck the landing, even. <laughs> so of course, there's other gars in that family, um, but what's interesting about it is the fossil record for that kind of gar dates back to the early Cretaceous period. That's dinosaur times, over, baby. Over a hundred million years ago. So many million. Now, one question I thought about is which came first, the alligators or the alligator gar? Oh, good question <laughs> indeed. Can I guess? Yeah. Gators. Not quite. No? So alligators' earliest ancestors evolved 245 million years ago, but crocodilians mm? first appeared 80 million years ago. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. So I think there's an argument to be made that, uh, one, the alligator looks like the gar. So. There it is. <laughs> okay. We have maybe the common name switched around. Sure. Maybe we should call the alligator the gar alligator. Right. <laughs> now, for perspective of that timeline, um, so, you know, we're talking about the gar have been around for 100 million years, crocodilians, 80 million the extinction event that ended non-avian dinosaurs was about 66 million years ago. That's the big one. Yes. That's the big the big dead. <laughs> the big yeah. deadening. Right. That's a very common like number to see when you're talking about <laughs> natural history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when everything got dead real fast. Yeah. Which that whole topic is very interesting in and of itself. Very much so. But so these guys were kicking it with the dinosaurs alongside yep. them. Yep, and outlived them. Get wrecked. But, yeah, you know. So moving right into our first category of effectiveness, I'm giving a full 10 out of 10. How could you not? This I is know. a great fish. I can't find a single thing to take points off for. <laughs> I mean, they've been at it for so long, right? <laughs> like, they, they left no room. Yeah, so that's worth mentioning. So this is this one of those animals that people refer to as living fossils because they've changed very little over the millions of years they've been around. Right. And like you mentioned, you know, once you have perfection, why change it? Don't fix what is not broke. That's the better way of saying that, yes. They can be found in fresh and brackish water, but also have been found in full salt water. Love it. Yeah. Getting adventurous, feeling a little spicy. I bet, though, they probably don't like being in open salt water just because then they're they're no longer filling a niche. Oh, true. Yeah, there's other stuff out there, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, they're no longer the... The top dog. Right. And one of the biggest points I want to give them is their size. Like I mentioned, largest gar species. They have few natural predators once they're adults. Um, the only One of the ones that they still have is American alligators. But, you know, that would have to be a very large alligator to go for a very large gar. Do you think we have another evolutionary arms race going on? Where <laughs> I doubt it. The gars and the gators are just, like, striving for biggest? No, like... not directly, at least. <laughs> Which is funny, though, because, you know, their ranges definitely overlap. So you could find them in the same place. Right. I wonder if they fight. Do you think there's some beef there? Like, some, <laughs> some rivalry between them? I mean, they probably eat each other's young. That's true, right? yeah. I bet there's some Romeo and Juliet-style blood feud. Right. Star-crossed lovers, perhaps? <laughs> Speaking of diet, the alligator gar seems to go after lots of different things. Basically, I think it can swallow. Now, the next topic I want to talk about with their effectiveness is the ability to breathe air. Okay. Yes. That helps. So their swim bladder can function as a lung. It lets them take gulps of air. So this is funny because I'm pretty sure like the lungs in like us uh -huh. and all the other stuff that has lungs are evolved from the same structure yes. as the swim bladder in modern day fish. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like we, I think maybe we've maybe talked about this before. Lungfish, yeah, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, the one that's in Africa, right? Yeah. yeah. So these are facultative 
air breathers. What does facultative mean? The opposite of obligate. What does obligate mean? (laughs) (laughs) So obligate means they have to breathe air. Facultative means they can if the... If certain, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. If the vibes are <laughs> right. C- certain situations. Sure. So the places you'll find these are often in slow or stagnant bodies of water. Mm. Um, and in hot places. And water, when it's hot, does not hold as much oxygen. We talked about this principle with the ice fish. Because yeah. they, they live in water that's really, really cold. So it has a ton of oxygen right. in it. Right. This is the opposite. Mm-hmm. The water's hot. Yep. There's less oxygen. <laughs> so they do have gills. Mm-hmm. And if they are in a body of water that's uh, well enough oxygenated, they don't need to, to gulp air. But otherwise they can. A backup lung. So this terminology, I did a quick search because I remember talking about it before a long time ago. And mm-hmm. we did with the electric eel. Oh, yeah. yeah. So similar situation. I think that there are quite a few fish that live in fresh water mm-hmm. that have the option of breathing air out of the water if they need to. Right. Because you just so often run into that situation where the water is really muddy or the water's warm or something like that. And they're yeah. not able to get enough air from the water. So like it helps to have that as an option. These are also very big fish. so Big boys. They need to get that oxygen. They do. The way they take the gulps, by the way, is with their, their snoots, basically. <laughs> so they'll, they'll swim up to the, the surface of the water and just poke out and take a gulp. Mm, a, a gulp of air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like the backwards of drinking from the stream or something like that. Like, yeah. Whereas other animals would come to the stream and put their snout in to gulp the water. <laughs> yeah. And this is just the exact inverse of that. Right. Next thing I want to talk about are their eggs. Um, their eggs are toxic to humans, other mammals, birds, and invertebrates. So you might have noticed the one thing I left out of there uh-huh. is fish. Uh-oh. <laughs> they didn't get that one? Yeah. That, what's, I mean, because I'm thinking about all the other stuff you named. There is no, like, branch of the evolutionary tree that, like, only includes those things while excluding fish. Right. So, like, how did fish... Get out of this. There's some research going on as to the purpose of this toxicity, but one thing I kept saying was it might just be an unintended side of, side effect. Like, it <laughs> where where are they laying their eggs? Underwater. So the one thing, <laughs> the one thing they really needed to focus on being poisonous to. Well, so keep in mind this area also has freshwater crustaceans, right? Like crawfish. Mm, sure. And also birds will will find. You know, these clumps of eggs. Mm-hmm. I so, was thinking of like herons. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they those would probably birds. not hesitate to take a little a little chunk of those forbidden boba pearls. <laughs> now, I'm sure this was found out with humans because, you know, we have this food habit of eating fish eggs, you know, caviar. Um, have you ever had caviar? Uh, I don't think so, actually. I've never had caviar. I'd try it once. I know you would. <laughs> Um, but no, don't do that with gar eggs. No, um, absolutely not. Uh, they Unless are, it's like your it's like your final meal sort of thing. Like, well, there's no reported deaths in humans from it, but you will be in some severe gastrointestinal distress over it. Um, so yeah, their eggs, whether or not you know they're still in the body of the gar or freshly laid, even when they are somewhat freshly hatched, mm. still a little toxic. They are edible <laughs> once. <laughs> 
So I think you know part of the problem with animals is when they find a bunch of fish eggs, they're not just going to eat one or a couple. They're going to like scarf down a bunch. Betcha can't eat just one. <laughs> Once you pop, you just don't stop. <laughs> but also, like, is the predator going to bother to sit down and like closely inspect the fish egg to see if it's a gar egg or right. some other type of egg? Yeah. I wonder if there's any other fish that have like evolved eggs that mimic gar eggs. So part of that episode with Dr. David, it's not like... The ologies episode? Yes. Big shout out, love ologies. Part of that conversation was, you know, he's saying he doesn't think the animals that eat them and then die from them don't have a chance to pass on that knowledge, Mm, (laughs) right? That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, as they hatch and get older, they lose that toxicity. So there's still a good chunk of time where they're very small fish Mm -hmm. that aren't toxic and other fish and things can eat them easily. There is a window. Yeah. There's a little window of vulnerability. Yeah. Next thing I want to talk about are their scales. I never did figure out how this word is pronounced. It's either ganoid or ganoid. I'm going to say ganoid. Okay. Ganoid scales. Uh, They're interlocking scales that are similar density to tooth enamel. (laughs) What? Yes. That's really tough. They're very tough. Really? Yes. Are they the only ones that have scales like this? Uh, No. Sturgeon also have scales like this. So yeah, they have these very, very tough scales that, you know, offer great protection. Even like humans that fish them and want to eat them and all that have to have special tools to cut through it. Uh, Like you're not going to be able to take a pocket knife to it. I feel like why bother at that point? They're supposedly good eat. Yeah. So again. I've heard that sturgeon is tasty. Yeah. Sturgeon I've heard is really good. I don't know about, I don't know of people eating gar, so I don't. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a myth that has been getting worked out recently is that the alligator gar were seen as trash fish or something in some way. Oh, that's rude. Yeah. But, you know, (laughs) or garbage. Oh, no. That's rough. <laughs> but no, uh, they apparently can be very pretty tasty. And again, I would try it once, at least. Yeah. They've found these scales at uh, sites of Native American, um, what do they call those trash heaps? Middens? Yes, I think. Okay. So there's research going on about, like, is this just from when they were eating them, or were they actually using them for tools? Because there's, there's been some experimentation along with Using their scales for arrowheads. I mean, yeah. Yeah. They're perfectly shaped for it, Mm -hmm. right? I couldn't find a definitive yes-no if it was actually used that way. Oh, okay. Now, their teeth. Lots and lots of teeth. Very pointy. Are they snaggly like gators are? Like how gators have the teeth that kind of point every which way? A little bit. A little bit. But one difference is these guys have two rows of teeth in their mouth. Do they really? Yes. Wild. Yeah. Huh. They're very pointy. They're not meant for slashing and tearing. They're meant for holding on to, you know, slippery fish. Oh, are they like long and needly? Yes. Oh, yes. okay, okay. And finally, I want to talk about their longevity. They can live for over 100 years. No, they can't. What? Is there one in particular that like has been documented living this long? So the way they do this, so no, I don't think it's a directly observed you know, longevity. Mm. But the way they estimate this is through a, a type of ear bone that's in their heads. What? Um, that basically you can count the rings of like a tree. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. Kind of like how they tested the, wasn't it the Greenland shark that had something similar? Well, the Green, the Greenland shark, they were using uh, radiocarbon dating. Oh, okay. Because of them, oh, yeah, it was them, the... them being around for nuclear testing. Right, right, right. It was like the uranium <laughs> yeah. in the water and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. I see. I see. 
but that's how they do it with these. Um, so it's it's the kind of species that if you find a very big one, that's a very old fish. Oh, because they grow and grow and grow and yeah. grow. That's how gators are too. So the you know they have a growth pattern like you know early on their growth is very fast, but that that slows down right as they get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, ingenuity, I'm giving a six out of ten. Maybe not, not their brightest. Not spot. a lot. They're ambush predators. So what they'll do is they'll float in the water, uh, sometimes close to the surface, and just wait for something to get close enough to where it can quickly like side bite to get a hold of it. Lateral motion sort right. of thing. That's yeah. a good idea. So they seem sluggish, but in those moments you know, of attack, they are quite fast. <laughs> it's like a burst. Yeah. Like yeah. a cheetah. Also, I mentioned the gulping for air. They seem to have this behavior where you know, if they're in a group and one of them goes up to gulp for air, they'll all kind of go up and gulp for air at the same time. Really? Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> I bet that's a terrifying sight to see. Can you imagine? You're just like floating down the river. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden you see these giant gator snouts coming right. up to the surface of the water. You're like <laughs> writing your will as you see it. <laughs> yeah. I think the first time I heard about this fish was on the River Monsters show on mm. Animal Planet, I think is what yeah, it was on. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They had a phase there for a while. <laughs> but, you know, their their scales are so tough that, you know, if you rub them the wrong way, they can actually cut you. <gasps> so. Don't touch. <laughs> I mean, you got that to worry about. And also, they can bite your hand clean off. So. I mean, I, I don't think off. They, they don't have the same kind of bite pressure that alligators do. Mm. So it seems like, you know, they're they're not the type of animal to rip pieces into smaller bits. They're, mm. they're going after things that they can swallow whole. Right. right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, I wouldn't be on the menu. So they're, they're prob- <laughs> yeah, they're not likely to go after a human. Right. You know what was funny that I remembered? One time, uh, the Animal Planet Twitter account posted a photo that had a caption about the alligator gar saying, like, the alligator gar is, like, the largest species of gar. Like, information about the alligator gar in the caption. And the photo was of a sturgeon. Oh, and they no. got dragged <laughs> on Twitter. Close. No. It w- and it was immediate it was like within seconds of them posting it they were getting just like roasted on twitter i don't think i've ever seen one in person i I did a cursory search of the aquariums we frequent Mm -hmm. i I couldn't find anything about them being there we've seen other types of gar certainly but not an alligator gar i saw gar that the person who was with me at the time told me they were alligator gar, mm-hmm. but this was in Tampa, which is not in the range that you said the alligator gar no. lives. So I don't think it was an alligator oh, you, gar. You mean like in the wild? Yes. Oh no, I've seen wild gar. Yeah, no. Don't think it was a. Now that you say that, I don't think it was. I think this person just saw a gar and thought they were maybe all alligator gar. Got it. Unless you were in the like Pensacola area of Florida. No. No. Not, okay. I've, no. One time, my uncle caught a wild gar and put it in his koi pond in his backyard and then let it go because it ate all the koi in his koi pond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> and the, the alligator gar is the kind of a fish that people will, you know, think about putting into an aquarium. Mm-hmm. But if you want that fish for a long term, you're going to have to have plans for it to be in something like a pond or right. something eventually. No tank can contain this beast. <laughs> Though apparently, you know, they can do okay in salt water. So some aquariums, I think um, Dr. David was talking about how he's seen them in, a, in an aquarium with like sharks and stuff. <laughs> I mean, if they can hold their own, you know, yeah. like 
What is a shark going to do? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> I would definitely go see one if I knew where one was. Yeah. We've seen lots of gar. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen Florida gar and like spotted gar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at, at the, the Florida Aquarium. Yeah, for sure. Oh, um, so final category is aesthetics. I'll give it a nine out of ten. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Slender, armored, snoot. They've got it all. The, yeah. the whole package. <laughs> they could, they could, going back to what I said earlier, they could be doing a little more with the colors. Yes. They could be. I've seen some spectacular freshwater fish. Sometimes freshwater fish will will just like sprinkle in a little, like a little glitter, a little iridescence here and there. You know, like I've seen it done. It's not impossible. Consider it. It's got that ambush game to play though. They so. do, but like... I'm just saying, if they're in the water, everything's muddy and murky anyway. Like, you can afford it. <laughs> Treat yourself to, like, a little something. All a right. little glamour. <laughs> in terms of conservation, they are rated least concern and population trend unknown by the IUCN as of 2018. Their threats include pollution, loss of habitat, and harvesting. So, both for food and aquarium. I associate gar, I think, a lot with mangrove forest, like mm-hmm. mangrove and swamp ecosystems, which are at particularly high risk of degradation by development and pollution. Yeah. Protect your wetlands. Care for your wetlands. Be a good steward to your mm-hmm. freshwater environments. That's the alligator gar. That's a great fish. It is. This won't be our last time talking about gar on the podcast, I mm-hmm. promise you. It's merely the simply the first, the opening chapter. <laughs> well, thank you, darling. That was great. Anytime. And thank you to our listeners for spending this time with us today. I really appreciate you coming along this journey with us. If you liked what you heard today, I'd love it if you could leave us a good review on your podcatcher. I really do read them always. They make me really happy. So thank you for doing that. You can come hang out with us virtually. We're on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. All of them are a great time. So follow along and hang out with us virtually. I also stream video games. Um, I've been streaming them every Thursday night, and I'm going to start bumping it up to every Thursday and Sunday night. So if you enjoy animal-themed video games, come watch me play them on my Twitch, which I'll have a link to all the stuff in the episode description below. We'd also like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network with their other delightful shows, like Triple Click, which I love. I listen to all the time. <laughs> and also Finley likes it, because sometimes when Kirk is editing Triple Click, he makes this little sound where he edits something in and he goes, bing, and my little toddler in the backseat goes, Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> it's really, really cute. So I really like Triple Click. That's a great show. Yeah. And finally, thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music. It slaps. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly good. Great song for what I hope is a great podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that the theme music doesn't outshine us. Like, <laughs> do you think the theme music like sets an unrealistically high expectation gonna, of the quality of the show? We have really weird analytics where people are just <laughs> <laughs> listening to <laughs> like the first and last thirty seconds of each episode are like a huge spike, <laughs> and then the rest of the episode drops to zero. Can you imagine how many times you'd have to hit that forward fifteen seconds button? <laughs> That's funny because it's not like a track that exists anywhere else. Yeah, so, like, so that's your only option. Yeah, like if people want to hear it, they have to listen to our podcast. <laughs> make a mixtape of it or something. We're holding the song hostage. <laughs> so in order to hear it, you have to listen to our podcast. Hey, there's a there's a max fun idea. A max fun drive idea. <laughs> it's bonus content. It's MP3 download of the song. <laughs> 
the actual song without our voices in it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.